This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea hello listeners hope everybody's enjoying their uh, evening uh, I haven't really been that active on episodes, uh, pumping out my episodes. They've been uh, a little further in between than I would than I would normally like, but that's what happens in life, right? You get busy, uh, you have to switch some priorities around, focus on uh, more important things. But I, I wanted to uh, touch on this episode because I figured it would be a good a good focus. I think it's something that uh, the public may not be aware of. And maybe just some insight for defendants. So I wanted to really talk a little bit about discovery and 302s in particularly. Now when you hear uh, 302, some people who aren't familiar, they're not really sure what that is. Basically, to put it simply, they have what's called proffer sessions. When you decide to sit down with the government and you want to uh, entertain making a deal and becoming an informant, uh, you have to give them information, so they set up a proffer session. During those proffer sessions, everything that you say is recorded in the form of a 302. It's like memorialized. Basically, it's notes made of the meeting. The agents involved uh, dictate what was said, and they write it down. Which, I tell you the truth, I have a problem a little bit with that with that process. As far as... Uh, just accurate, you know, accuracy, you know, um, ideally for, you would figure that would be recorded. You would want the recordings of that just to make sure everything that was said was properly documented and memorialized. I mean, it's a little scary that you have to just hope that they captured everything, you know, and um, it's just a little concerning because... I'm not saying that they do it intentionally. There could even be like human error where they don't capture something maybe the informant says that could be helpful to the defendant or maybe conflicting accounts because they do a lot of different sessions. You know, they'll have uh, when they're working with an informant, uh, when they're getting ready for trial, they'll have a lot of sessions where they have 302s on those sessions. So you want to always go through them and see if anything changes and you want to look for details, see if they change names uh, just cross-check it for accuracy as you're uh, diving into the analysis phase of preparing for trial and trying to understand the informants they may have and what information they're, they're saying, what's lies, what, what may be truth that could be uh, hurtful to your defendant. So you want to just have the accuracy. And one would just, fig- uh, one would just figure that in nowadays that would all be recorded and there'd be a much more systematic way of ensuring everything's accurate. But I got to tell you, one reason I wanted to talk about this, on the last case I was on, and I wish I could show them, but I can't because it's a protective order, 
but it's amazing. Probably thousands of pages total between all the different informants, uh, 302s, when we were going through them, you wouldn't believe how many of those pages were actually handwritten notes. And I think accidentally on purpose, the handwriting was horrible. So it took so much time to really go through these individual notes and try to understand what you were reading because the handwriting is, is horrible. And, I, and I'm really not one to talk. I have terrible penmanship, but I type everything out. And again, you would figure there'd be a systematic way where everything has to be typed. And I'll tell you the advantage of when it's typed. When, when you have a typed document, uh, you could then convert it to OCR, uh, a character recognition. And what that allows you to do is you could search the document for keywords. So if you have thousands of documents, I'm going to give you an example where what I'm saying, you'll understand why it makes sense. Say you have a case with seven, eight defendants, right? And everybody's going through all the different 302s and you want to divvy it up. Say you want to divvy it up to different teams and everybody wants to focus on their defendant when they're reading the 302s, anything that relates to their defendant, they want to pull it out. Now, if you're able to OCR it and you're able to convert it where you could, can, uh, basically what that means is you're converting the document if you pull the image up. Uh, PDF, Adobe has the ability to convert that document where it recognizes each character on that page. So you could then search all the different words. And that comes in very handy because if you want to search names, if you're trying to find your defendant names and you just want to allocate and separate the 302s that pertain to your client, if you want to put them in a folder, it, it really improves the production rate of being able to do that if you could do it electronically from searches and from scans. When you have to go through handwritten notes that's like chicken scratch, you can't do that. So what, what may take you a whole day going through one informant's 302s based on the poor penmanship if it was typed up, you may be able to get it done in a couple hours. And I, and I really think that's on purpose because there's no reason for that. Again, we're in 2022. There's no reason these things should be handwritten chicken scratch notes. That's all on purpose because there's some words you can't even make out. You don't know what they're talking about. You have to go back and forth and try to clarify. It just delays things and it makes the process 10 times harder. And a lot of defendants don't understand that. And the public doesn't understand that. They they think, oh, well, they got everything they needed. They got all the evidence. They got everything properly to fight the case. They don't understand all these little maneuvers and all of these tactics uh, that take place behind the scenes that prevent uh, the case and preparing for trial from going smoothly. And that's just one of the, one of the uh, items that I... I really had a hard time wrapping my head around as I was going through when I got involved in this uh, five years back and I got involved in this industry and I started seeing these 302s and all these notes and a poor penmanship and in my head I'm like, wow, this is really not an effective way of doing this. And of course, as I said, that's to me it's accidentally on purpose. They have the ability, the government has the ability, they have endless money they could streamline this one, two, three. They could just do a mandate that says all 302s have to be typed uh, and recorded, and that's that. That's the end of that. But I don't think it's done on purpose. The same reason why I don't think they don't want cameras in the courtrooms. I spoke about that on one of my episodes. I think it'd be very important to have cameras in the courtrooms. 
you'd want to record a lot of things that could possibly that have taken place during the trial. Uh, say the prosecution said something under their breath, or say the judge was rolling their eyes or doing uh, body language to impact the juror. Whatever took place, if you, if you objected for mistrial and you could see that, having that on tape, I believe, would be highly powerful during an appeal. If you could cite something that took place during the trial and then you include a video exhibit to accompany and to support your claim, think about how powerful that would be. That would remove a lot of the he said, she said out of, out of an argument, out of emotion. Because now you're, you're, you're showing it, you're highlighting it, you're, you're allowing the appellate court to see how it played out. Um, and even for members of the public to see what took place during trial. If you want to, uh, if, if there was um, fractures within the trial, if jurors may have done something. I, there's endless reasons for it. I did a whole episode, I, I don't want to rehash the episode, but I did an episode about cameras in the courtroom. I'm just trying to point out that these things all kind of tie into each other and are relatively easy to do to improve the justice system, but they don't get done. And, and I personally believe a lot of that's on purpose because if you notice, it's never to the prosecution's advantage to have these things done. It's always for the defendant's advantage. If these items impacted the ability of the prosecution, the government, the state to put on an effective case, mark my words, they would change it immediately. They would update it so it's in their best interest. Being it has to do with the defendants, I don't think it's that much of a priority. And that's one of the hardest things when you're preparing for trial. It's the organization. It's making sure things don't get missed. And I want to talk about that a little bit, about the what it looks like when it comes in. When, when they have discovery nowadays, the defendant has to purchase a hard drive. The government will notify... Uh, the defense team, they'll say, okay, round four or whatever is coming out. They, they call each discovery rounds. So they'll notify the defense on, on the government level, on the federal level now I'm talking about. I'm talking about federal. State, the discovery laws have changed for the better in a lot of places. Uh, I did an episode on that as well. I don't remember which one it was. But I talked about the discovery reform in New York. And, and that's on a very good path. They're, they're getting things straightened out. On the federal level, they're trying to change the discovery rules and processes, but it hasn't changed as of yet. And there's several organizations leading that that charge to try to have some discovery reform on the federal level. NACDL is one of them. That's the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So they're trying to change it. But uh, let me get back to what I was saying. So the government will notify the defense team, okay, we have round three of discovery coming out. And they'll tell you, you need to buy a hard drive. And that's another expense for the, for the defendant. Defendant has to buy a hard drive, send it to the prosecution team. They'll load up the discovery and they'll send it back to you. Now, let me tell you, when you get that hard drive, if you're not really experienced with zip files and protected files and encrypted files, it could get very overwhelming. They send it over and you open it up. A lot of times it's hard to make heads or tails of it. A lot of things aren't labeled. You have to go through, you have to find everything, you have to sort it. And they include a lot of bloatware on the hard drive. And let me explain that. I noticed when I was going through a lot of these hard drives and I was extracting the data and I was sorting it and organizing it based on the information, based on the defendant, based on the informant, depending on what the the, uh, round of discovery was. 
but I noticed there was a lot of like bloatware, there was software. They include different software to help you open up some of the programs. However, it's overkill. There's a lot of bloatware that's included, a lot of files that are included that you don't need. And to the untrained eye, if the attorney may not be familiar with it, they'll open it up, they'll see all these files in there, they don't know what's what, they don't know how to launch the software that the government included. Um, for example, there was some video footage. And uh, on the last trial, a lot of the defendants weren't able to open the, the video footage because they didn't understand that the government will include a program sometimes, not all the time. They'll include a, a program within the hard drive that you can install to then view the footage. So people were trying to open it and Windows, let's just say Windows Media, didn't have the Kodak uh, codec to open it. That's really the um, extension of the file. Um, Windows Media, all these, all these different video programs, they all have these different um, uh, formulas, let's say, like a codec that goes into the, into the software that lets you play the video, okay? Whether it's an MP4, whatever it may be, an AVI, a Wave, whatever the file may be, they'll give you software to allow you to play it. So people don't realize that. They may just click on it and they're like, hey, I can't open this video. I can't see it. They don't realize you got to install software to play it. It gets very confusing. And to me, all accidentally on purpose. It's made unnecessarily chaotic. So that's just where I come in with my team. We organize it and get it where it needs to be so you can go through it. But imagine opening these things and when you have these cases with thousands and thousands of audio tapes, the last big case I was on, I have a few small ones now that my office is working on. One big one, but it may wind up being a plea, so I don't know. We're pretty much prepared, preparing everything, but we got to see how it plays out. But on a big case, a lot of these big cases where there's a lot of audio records, you'll get 80,000, 90,000 audio files, 100,000 audio files, anywhere from like one second of somebody picking up the phone and hanging it up to an hour, two hour phone conversation. Or if it's a, somebody wearing a wire, it could be four or five hours of them just walking around with the wire. And you have to listen through, go through all these things. So what's, what's bothersome is they know the defense, the prosecution knows the evidence. They know everything they have. So they know the amount of volume that's in it. And when they just dump it on the defense and, and on top of that, then you want to start messing with, you, you want to include things to make the process harder. You want to, you want to make it more confusing and not systematic. It's unnecessary to me, and in this day and age, I hate to keep saying it, but there's no reason for it. Everything could be streamlined, and a defendant's life is on the line based on the information that's on these hard drives, and you have to go through it all, and you got to listen, you know, and it takes a lot, a lot. It takes a team to go through the tapes. There could be a sentence or two that could help your defendant, and it's buried in this information. So it does get a little scary and a little overwhelming, and you really have to have a good system in place and a way to, to organize and a way to separate out and to identify what's important from what's nonsense. As I was saying, if you have 50,000 calls, you may have 10,000 of those calls that are like one or two seconds. So there's a lot of tricks you could do in the discovery to... to um, separate that initially. You could do a, a sort by duration. That's one of the tools I use. I'll, I'll open up all the audio files. 
I'll uh, add the field of duration to see how long the audio is. And then I try to try to store sort it. If it's five seconds or under, usually it's nonsense. So you put it in one file to look at later. You know, things like that. You got to kind of use common sense and, and a little bit of uh, knowledge as you're going through it for the best way to attack it. And I always think, you know, the, the law goes, the burden of proof is on the government, on the prosecution. They have to prove their case. But we know that's really not true. You got to prove your, your innocence. And it's really dangerous if you don't take the time to go through that information, to go through all the different discovery, every item in the discovery, because regardless of them saying the burden of proof is on the government, you have to prove your innocence. I'm just telling you the reality of it. I hate to say it like that and contradict, but that's the truth. You really have to prove your innocence. You really have to put your case together to show that the charges are BS. At least do your best to do that. Uh... Unfortunately, a lot of the times that all depends on the judge and if they'll allow you to do that because they decide what you could talk about, what you could submit as evidence, what you could cross-examine on. So if they're knocking everything out, you're going to have a hard time. But you do want to give it your best and have all your ducks in a row so when the time comes, you're prepared. And far too often I, I've seen sometimes you will get certain attorneys who will be like, I ah, don't worry about that, that's not important, don't go through that. I come from a different philosophy. To me, everything's important until I decide it's not important. In other words, I'm not going to ignore it. I want to see it. I want to digest it. And I want to understand it. Even if I'm wasting my time, it doesn't matter. It'll give me a clear head. I just want to make sure so I could check it off my box and move off to the next, the next item in the discovery. And I really recommend that for defendants, for any family members who may be helping on the case. A lot of times, because these things are not cheap, you get a lot of family members helping on the case. And that was really in my in my instance as well on, on the case with my with my father. I enlisted. It's not even like I had to enlist. My my family members wanted to help, but you need that help. You need that help. You know, siblings helping. Whoever could help could could dive in, and you could you could uh, assign certain tasks and certain responsibilities to to extract all the information, go through it. In our case, one of the biggest pieces of that puzzle was the transcripts. I spoke about that. You really want to go through the transcripts because it's almost, it's somewhat of double the work. You'll get, you'll get transcripts as you get closer to trial. You don't get it initially. As you get closer to trial, you'll get transcripts from the prosecution of the tapes they're going to use. To give you the transcripts on the tapes you're going to use. So now, if you didn't transcribe those transcripts when you were doing your due diligence and you were preparing for trial on the defense end, you have to now go through their transcript. The biggest mistake that I've seen a few defense teams make is they take the prosecution's transcripts as gospel. And you can't do that. You have to find the audio. Don't even look at their transcript is my recommendation. Find their audio, decipher it yourself, transcribe it yourself with your team, then compare it. This way, you could see if there's any contradictions or there's any statements that are uh, different, anything that varied from what you were given from the government uh, based on their transcript production. And we have found a lot of inconsistencies and discrepancies. We found a lot of things that just didn't match up. We had one word, they had another, so then you have to, it's another process, you have to bring it to the judge, uh, oftentimes play the tape. And what I found that the judge does, which I don't really agree with, some of the rulings the judge will do is they'll tell 
The judge does this. Let me explain it this way. The judge tells the the jurors that the transcript should not be considered in replace of the audio. They tell the jurors the transcript transcript should only work as a guide for why they're listening to the audio. Now, I have a problem with that, and there's studies that are done on this. And again, I did an episode on this as well. After two years, I'm sure I covered a lot of things, but I, I try to expand as I keep going on. Now, when you're listening to something and you're reading along, what happens is what you hear is going to match up to what you're reading. So that's a little dangerous because if the word sounds close to what's on the transcript, the jurors are just going to assume that the transcript is accurate. Say they're saying on the tape uh, something is blue, but on the transcript it said through, and and that just maybe changes the whole context. Um, I'm just using that as an example. The change in word, let's just say, changes the whole context, and the transcript is wrong. The jurors aren't going to pick up on it if it's something close, if the words are close. Now, if they're totally different words, they may pick up on it, and then you'll have to deal with that in court and object and say that's not what it says. But if they're close, they're really not going to pick up on it. So the judge will sometimes say, okay, give them both transcripts. Give them the defense transcript and the prosecution transcript. Now, think about that. That's going to be very confusing. They're going back and forth from both transcripts. I don't know. I I think they should have more of a... uh, definitive ruling on that if if there is if the prosecution says uh something says a and the defense says it says b that should be ironed out before it goes into the juror's hand i've seen a couple times where the judge will give two transcripts or recommend just giving both transcripts i think that's a big mistake you should have that ironed out before you play the tape make sure it's accurate in our case we actually hired a uh, audio forensic and linguistic expert on a couple of the transcripts just to clarify because the government did have it wrong and we wanted to prove that it wasn't only us that was saying it was wrong. We had an expert saying it was wrong. So we took it to the next level. That's not always necessary. Sometimes you could do it at a hearing and just play it and get the, you know, and, and argue it based on that. But by getting an expert, you do many times eliminate having to go back and forth because now you have an expert analyzing the audio and telling you what it says to uh, clarify the transcript before it's played during court. And, and I really, I think the problem is, and that's why I wanted to do my podcast, because a lot, of, just to share a lot of these tips and a lot of this insight with the public to make them aware of how things go on. And, and oftentimes I'll hear people, especially with We Push Back, you get a lot of these people, they're talking about... Um, Oh, they should change the system. Why are they focused on informants? They they shouldn't be bothering informants. They should go to the government and the prosecution. That sounds great in theory, and I agree. It has to be changed on that level. But I would ask them, how much experience do they have with changing legislature, with changing laws? I don't think they understand how that process works and what's entailed in that, and that's somewhat of a false reality that they're living in where they think it's that easy. Like, oh, go change it on that level. It's very hard to get that done on that level. And you're going to be beating your head up against the wall. The wall. Uh, for example, that the discovery reform I spoke about, that's been in the works for years and years. Still hasn't changed. So I made peace with myself that I'm not going to be changing things on the legislature, uh, legislature level 
So where can I make somewhat of an impact? Okay, I got a computer. There's YouTube. I could talk to people that way. So I'll try to... I would try to appeal to the public and to the jurors and change it on that level for the minuscule impact I may have. So that th that's what I feel is within my power and within my skill set to make a difference. You got these <laughs> these guys on YouTube doing podcasts and, and they're saying, oh, go to the uh, you know feds and change it to government, go to the court system. They they sound like you know children who believe in dragons and butterflies. That, that's not how it works. You're just saying those things because you don't like what's being done and what's being said and the uh, traction we're making. So they're trying to act as if they have a better way of doing it. Like, oh, why are you wasting your time on podcasts? Go to courtrooms. Change the court. Go to Washington. <laughs> Ridiculous. But I just wanted to give my insight on that. That's not a reality. Uh, that's on levels that are above my pay grade for going to Washington and putting in bills and trying to get... Uh, bills introduced and passed, that, that's way above my pay grade. So I do it on this level. This is uh, the way I could impact society, impact the court system, impact defendants, uh, and do my small little tiny part in trying to get people more of a fair trial. And if nothing else, just educating the public a little bit. People have a right to know what goes on where they live within their criminal justice system. So I try to just uh, offer or for direction in that area and experience and in knowledge on what I what I could share. And again, in my opinion, a lot of that overwhelming discovery rounds where they're given hard drive after hard drive, all this information, in my opinion, I believe a lot of it is to force defendants to take pleas. As um, I spoke about, which this should definitely change. They changed it on the New York state level, which is huge. But on the federal level, for somebody to take a plea, they should at least give them all the discovery and all the evidence that they're up against before they ask the defendant to take a plea. Now they're just, they'll give a plea blindlessly. Um, and what I mean by that is they'll just offer a plea. The defendant has no idea what discovery they're up against, no idea what information or evidence or facts that they may have against them. They're kind of making a decision blind, and they're telling them very early on in the case, okay, you can either face life in prison or do 10 years. I mean, you know, a lot of people, I know the average citizen will say, well, if you're innocent, go to trial. That's easy for people to say when they're not faced with that. In theory, yeah, if you're innocent, of course you want to go to trial. Um, but it doesn't work that way. Just because you're innocent doesn't mean you're going to be found innocent. Again, just go to the Innocent Project and look at how many wrongful convicted people are in there and how many uh, innocent people were exonerated. So that's kind of ignorant to say that. Well, if you're innocent, just go to trial. There's a lot of factors for that. There's costs involved. You have lawyers. You know, they charge you one fee for pretrial and then another fee for trial. So you're going to get hit again when you go to trial for more money. And not including all the time, the aggravation, money spent. It's a decision to be made. Sometimes you have a lot of innocent people taking pleas because they don't have the funds to go to trial, because they just don't want to risk it, because they feel they're not going to get responsible jurors. They're not going to get jurors who are going to give them a fair trial. They're going to get jurors who just judge them based on their reputation or based on rumors and they're not going to weigh the facts. There's a lot of layers for somebody considering taking a plea. And just because somebody takes a plea, it does not mean they're guilty.
oftentimes in life, you have to weigh what's the best of a worse situation, and you have to be realistic. So if you're in a really bad situation, and somebody comes and tells you, you'll be home in five years, and this will be behind you, or you're risking spending the rest of your life in jail, that's something to think about. Initially, the knee-jerk reaction when somebody's innocent is, hey, let's go to trial. No, I'm not taking anything. I'm innocent. But then when you sit back and you see a lot of these trials that play out and people are being found guilty when they're not guilty and you see a lot of the tactics used and you see how the government does things and you realize you're in for all these rounds of discovery, you have to go through everything. You have to hire people. You have to hire teams. It's not cheap to get transcriptions done, to get audio files done, to go through videos, to go through documents. Uh, the 302s, as I talked about earlier, to go through the 302s, to read everything. There's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot there, and all those items have to be considered. So people just have to be sensitive to that and be a little realistic with how pleas work. And now, with the federal system, they may offer you a plea, as I was referring to earlier, and you don't even know what, what you're up against. So you have, to, you have to make a decision without even knowing who your accusers are. Uh, that's another thing. They don't reveal, a lot of the times, these... Informants do not get revealed till right before trial. They try to wait and wait, and they do that on purpose because, more often than not, they'll keep the inf they want to keep the informant undercover. They want to keep them entrenched in whatever they're they're doing, whatever information they're trying to get. So they want to hold their identity to the last minute. And when you think about that, how is that fair? If somebody's on trial and you get indicted, I think they should give you everything. You need the time to investigate. If you have a witness against you that maybe you never heard of, you don't even know, an informant against you, 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 the defense needs time to do a background check, hire a private investigator possibly. Another another uh, um, tactic that's used is you hire the defense team or hire a court runner. The court runner, let's say this informant or this witness had a lot of court cases. Let's say they... Um, old child support, or they beat their wife, they beat their girlfriend, you want to hire a, a court reporter to go to the different courts and get those records so you could look into these witnesses, try to impeach them on the stand. And that's, um, those are things that I can't wrap my head around when you're trying to say this is a fair system. I can't wrap my head around how these things are allowed to be held back. You don't even know who your accusers are from inception. You have to wait and wait. Uh, the last case, uh, uh, for my father's case, the indictments came out in 2017. Trial took place in 2019. <clears throat> there was rolling discovery throughout all of those years. We were getting discovery up to two days of trial. I think it was two or three days before trial was the last round of discovery. Uh, I don't have to tell you how that is. You're getting hit with another round. You got to go through it. You got to vet and you prepare for trial in a couple days. The whole system has really got a lot of flaws as far as how it plays out. It's not a fair system. It's not balanced. And jurors just need to be aware of that. The public needs to be aware of that. And the only way to counteract that is by building a, a solid defense team from inception. People that you know aren't going to slack. People that are going to do their responsibilities, get the jobs done. And it's a lot. I find delegations key. You have to find when you have a team... You find your individual members' strong points. You assign them to the ta tasks they could excel at. Have them focus on that. It's really about delegating to the right people where everybody could, could work in harmony 
at the, at the highest level possible to make sure that the defense is extracting all information necessary to get their client a fair trial. Another process of trial uh, where it relates to just getting uh, documentation and preparing, once trial starts, it's important for the defense to order the transcripts. They have, they have the, the transcripts of the trial, but you need to order them for almost the next day because what happens is you'll have a, uh, an informant on the stand and you want to see, and the, and the prosecution did their part, and they they um, had the informant on the stand, and they gave him questions, and they analyzed everything, and they asked what they wanted to ask in front of the juror. They had the informant answer the way they wanted him to answer. So now what's important for the defense is you want a copy of that. So the defense then has to order that transcript, get it, and the purpose of that, you want to look at that transcript, you want to see how the informant answered on the stand, and compare it to the 302s. And that's where the 302s come in that are very important. And, and when they write them in that chicken scratch, it makes the process even that much harder. But you want to just compare that their testimony, if there was any contradictions to their 302s in their proffer session, the defense team wants to be aware of that. So when it's their turn to cross-examine that witness, they could exploit that if there was inconsistencies. So it's nonstop. During trials, nonstop. You're always preparing. You're ordering the transcripts from the day. You're having meetings at night. You're going over the next day's performance or witness list, who's up, things like that. And and people don't realize what goes on behind the scenes to really have an effective defense team. And the defense is always, always climbing an uphill. It's an always an uphill battle. Think about it. You have the United States government. They have endless paralegals in their office, a bunch of uh, prosecutors, attorneys. They have an endless team. This is like nothing for them. They're banging out transcripts. They're reviewing material. They have endless team. Now, the average person, they're not able to do that. You're lucky if you have family that want to help or you have a few dollars, you're able to put together a, a defense team to help you. And that in no way could compete with what the government has, what the state has. There's no competition. So you're already behind the eight ball from day one. You don't have the resources, you don't have the time, you don't have the personnel, you're already behind the eight ball. So you really have to make sure the team you do have is one of quality, one that's capable, and one that's devoted. One, one lazy member on that team could spoil it, and I've dealt with that. I've, uh, I've dealt with getting rid of lawyers and hiring lawyers to be part of teams, and let me tell you, Unfortunately, sometimes you get lawyers that promise you the world before they get that retainer check. Then when they get that check, they're just not producing. And I always have a problem with that because you're dealing with the most serious thing in the world, one of the most serious things in the world. You're dealing with somebody's life and whether they have freedom or not. So you can't make promises you can't keep. If you say you're going to work at a certain pace, you got to live by that. I don't. Uh, one thing I don't like is somebody who claims... They have work ethic, and then when they get that money, it goes right out the window. You can't even get them on the phone. So those are all things you got to be aware of to try to compete with the government, with the state. You really have to build a solid team from inception. You really do, and you, and you need to be aware of these things. You need to understand how these things play out. And that's why I come on here to try to offer that insight, offer that perspective, and perhaps give defendants something to think about, a better way to prepare and to give the public something to think about how these things work and to understand how the system truly does work and not what's written in textbooks. There's a lot of things that take place that 
uh, aren't touched on within the textbook and how things truly play out in the system. And, you know, it, it, it then raises the point that there's a lot bigger things than the YouTube world and, and, and social media and all that. And I find, even on here, and, and I'm guilty of it too, sometimes you get a little too wrapped up in nonsense that goes on on these different platforms with the commenters, with, with things like that, with other creators. And you have to remind yourself, in the grand scheme of things, it's nonsense. It's people making comments on the computer, and it's people saying nasty things. Now, I'm not talking about serious stuff. There's more serious stuff that goes on. I'm not talking about harassment. I'm not talking about when people get bullied. I'm not talking about um, when it's nonstop and it's affecting someone's livelihood and somebody's name. I'm not talking about that. Those are serious issues. Those have to be addressed, and those have to be handled and confronted. Uh, I'd be the first one to confront and handle things on that kind of level uh, and with whatever's in my power and the way I'd be able to handle it and respond to it. So I, I'm talking more about the non, the nonsensical remarks, the repeated lies, the rumors. I, I had rumors. I had people telling me I didn't even have an office. They were like, oh, you're in an empty building. <laughs> okay, I'm in an empty building. So I just told myself when it's nonsense like that, I'm just going to go with it. Let them say whatever they want. I'm in an empty building. Okay, cool. I'm in an empty building. That's it. I'm not even going to respond. Uh, I would try to have a dialogue when initially I thought maybe people were curious or they didn't understand something. I was trying to explain it. And then little by little, I started seeing the same characters making the same ignorant comments, the same false statements. And I decided they're not here to learn anything or to try to understand. Even if they want to disagree, they may want to understand and then say, ah, even after you explain that I disagree, it's not even about that. They just want to, you may put out, you, you may, um, come to a an agreement on one issue but they'll or you may explain i should say because they never come to an agreement it's always in opposition so you may explain one issue then they'll come out with another issue and another issue and another and it's all lies and misstatements and misrepresentations so when you see that's the case for me personally i just realize you know what my my words are falling on deaf ears they have an agenda it's not even worth it's not even worth um addressing it and that's not easy to do. I'm sure I'm going to fail with that. I'm sure I'll have to respond to certain things that I feel I have to respond to. There's certain things that I still have on my mind that I'm going to respond to. There's a few uh, content creators that made several things and uh, statements and uh, a lot of remarks. And in, in time, I'll, uh, I'll respond to that once I... Uh, I, again, I said this on, on the We Pushback episode. I like to give people enough rope to hang themselves so I see how they play it out. I see how far sometimes somebody wants to push something. If they're not important to me, they're not even on my radar, um, I, I may let them keep going until I decide, okay, is enough, enough is enough, and let me just uh, respond a little bit and give them the business back. I, I am definitely from the school fi fight fire with fire sometimes, depending on the situation. So... Every situation is different. you got to evaluate each situation. And the truth is, the answer lies within. You're the best gauge of telling yourself how to respond. You don't need to ask people. You don't need approval. However you feel you want to respond, that's how you should respond. It doesn't matter who agrees with it and who doesn't. I try to just keep myself pleased. I'm my own meter. So I'll feel like, all right, Dominic, respond to this. Or, ah, Dominic, this is nonsense. Don't even go down that road. I'm my own gauge for that. And that's all everybody could do. You have to be your own gauge. It's what you're comfortable with. Some things are just too far, and they, 
and, and some people just go too far and it, and it doesn't warrant ignoring them uh, your inner self won't allow you to ignore them you want to address them and and i agree with that i i'm i'm a confrontational person in the sense i like to confront it deal with it but the only thing i don't like i don't like doing it on the internet you know I, i'd rather do a confrontation a debate a heated argument for me it's best done one-on-one -on -one, in person preferably this way everybody gets out of the way what they want to say and, and that's that and on here that's an impossibility you have random commenters anonymous people you don't even know who you're who you're talking to so it's it's very hard to find a uh, a reasonable way to, to approach that or an all-encompassing uh, rationale on how to deal with those things or solution. It's not easy. That's why you can really only do what feels right. And that's my advice to anybody on here. Just do what feels right. If you feel strongly, you feel you got to respond, respond. Uh, try to maybe take a step back, weigh it, see if it's really significant or if it's nonsense. Just not to aggravate yourself. That's really the bottom line. You don't want to aggravate yourself. Uh, people who are normally uh, trying to get a rise out of you, they're just doing it to create controversy, to create shock, to act as if they're making a stand, to act as if they're important. So you got to weigh all those things. I always I always uh, weigh the source, and I, and I decide if something's valid based on the source. I decide if it's something I want to respond to based on the source. And sometimes I break my, my own rule. Somebody, in my opinion, I wouldn't even cross the street with them. To me, they're not even a, an issue. They're not even somebody of a thought. And sometimes I find myself responding. And uh, I think that's a mistake sometimes. But we're all human. Uh, unfortunately, temper may prevent somebody from doing that, getting heated, getting aggravated. We all have emotions. We're not robots. So we can only do the best we, we can. And that all goes to everything I work on. What we push back, what my podcast. I do what I think's in the best interest of the cause, the best interest of educating the public, the best interest of getting the word out there. Uh, whether it's right or wrong to others, I really don't care. I've never been the type of person where I need somebody else's approval. I do what I want to do. That's just how it is. I do what I feel is best. I feel my, my gauge is the best gauge as everybody should feel, should all be feel confident in your decision-making abilities. And, um, even with family, with friends, a lot of times I don't do what somebody, what somebody asks me to do. I do what they need me to do. And sometimes that could cause a little bit of conflict. And then when it plays out and they see it's in their best interest, then maybe they have a different appreciation with it. But in the moment, they may not agree with it because they may ask you, Oh, don't do this or do it this way. And you don't because you feel that's not in their best interest. Uh, you're going to do what they need, not what they want. And that's, you know, that's a hard uh, decision to make sometimes. But that's all we could do. We can only do what we feel is best. We can only use these platforms and these outlets in a way that aligns with who we are as a person and allows us to operate in a way where we're, we're comfortable with what we put out and we're comfortable with how we responded. I think that's it for today's episode. I really just wanted to cover on those things. Uh, I thought it'd be useful. I had it in my phone. I make notes in my phone of things I want to uh, talk about. And I remember getting frustrated with trying to read these 302s. So I definitely wanted to cover that and talk about that. And that's it for today. Till next time. 
You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justicetechpros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off